welcome back to science a candle in the dark a podcast that is trying to do keep a conversation about science uh, as part of the public conversation i'm here in on a post winter storm rally uh, it's beautiful and sunny outside but we had a pretty cold weekend with a lot of snow and i'm recovering from a cold so my voice may or may not hold through this podcast but i'm glad to have a, my co-host Katie Mack here Hello. So Katie and I uh, are lucky to have a, a, a guest in the studio, Dr. Rob Dunn. Uh, we'll talk to him in a minute, but I just wanted to do a quick uh, touch on a couple of sort of news items. Uh, one that has hit me the most in terms of my own thinking about research and, and sort of some of the things we talked about last time in terms of humanity is the, the big climate change related news items. So a couple of things that have happened since our last, since we last talked to you, right? One was the, the US uh, climate uh, climate change report from the US government yeah. dropped yeah. and then was immediately uh, denied or, or well, denounced was, by the the administration. It was kind of dropped thing. on the day after Thanksgiving. Yes. So make sure right. everyone was paying attention. <laughs> That's right. That, and that, that, that sort of backfired because there were a lot of stories about the fact that it was dropped on the day after Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, we have uh, the, the climate conference happening in Poland right now. Uh, and there, too, I guess the U.S. has been missing in action. In fact, uh, the U.S. Energy Secretary is in Saudi Arabia right now, right? Talking about oil and energy, exp- energy market expansions instead of being in Poland or, or taking a leading role there. But at the same time, so these are kind of, you know, in, in terms of thinking about climate change and climate science and and the issue of climate denialism, it's, it may be despairing, both of these news items. But I think there's also some hope because you have a lot of young people who have become really active and are taking a leading role, even at the climate conference. In, yeah, in sw- Swedish Greta, that was the, she's amazing. Yeah, uh, it's a 15-year-old uh, Swedish activist who who was Greta at the Thunberg, climate. Yeah. yeah, Greta Thunberg, and she she gave a speech about um, uh, well, what's the what, right way to describe the speech? It was about the the future of of how we think about climate, and she yeah. called upon world leaders to take action, and then um, called upon children to to be leaders because the adults were being children. It was a really quite powerful speech. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, there have been a few things uh, yeah. like that going around. There's the the children who are suing the government mm-hmm. um, in the U.S. over the fact that yep. the government is basically not not safeguarding the future. Yeah. Um, there was a big walkout. And that lawsuit, lawsuit is going ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Going ahead. Yeah. And, and there was a big lo- uh, walkout, right? Uh, I don't remember where the school was, but like yeah. a bunch of students were... We're walking out to protest this, I think. So Greta, Greta what, what's Greta's last name? Thunberg. Yeah, so Greta Thunberg, the, the Swedish uh, mm. 15-year-old, she's let us walk out in Sweden yeah. every Friday. Mm. Not um, only that, I actually was reading about her. So she, it's an interesting story because she's on the autism spectrum, I think. Both her, her parents have written a book about both the children being on the spectrum. But she also is interesting because she started this protest by walking out of school. She was basically would come and sit in front of the, the parliament all five days a week. 
because she was, you know, it's like this is important. Nothing else matters. You have to come. So when politicians came, I started talking to her. So she actually scaled back to one one day a week, so every wow. Friday. Yeah. Now she, she she's she impressive. Yeah, yeah, she really is. I, I commented to a friend that somebody needs to hire her immediately, and the friend yeah. who's in Sweden responded that that that's the worst scenario that her power is is outside of yeah. of um, uh, any institution. Yeah, and on on the similar sort of activism note, the other thing that I'm, I'm reading about is in the U.S. here, there's a lot of momentum around this new new Green Deal or Green New Deal idea about how to uh, reboot the economy and lots of good ideas in there and again I think even yesterday there was a protest in the, in the halls of Congress with lots of young people demanding action from Congress with some of the newer newly elected representatives actually participating in this so I think this is something that I've felt about the whole climate debate even since the Rio 20 a few years ago where it felt like a lot of the, the global scale leadership was failing mm -hmm. and things have only gotten worse on that perspective since then but there's been a lot of local action so it seems like there's an interesting dynamic here where we, a lot of local level action needs to connect with each other and and transform things that way rather than waiting for big government actions to do things but it's still sort of a, a toss up yeah well, that was uh, so. That's kind of been on my mind about climate change and where the where the environment is. But in the meantime, you've continued exploring space. <laughs> you had something. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's been a whole lot of space news in the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, there was a there was a new lander on Mars, uh, the mm -hmm. Insight uh, lander, which is studying the the geology of Mars. So it's it's got a seismograph that's going to drill into the surface to measure the temperature and try and study the core of the planet and basically figure out like what happened to the core mm -hmm. of the planet because uh, what what seems to be the case is that the the core um, is no longer um, no longer has the kind of motion that's required to maintain a strong magnetic field but it used to and so like probably the issue is that Mars is smaller than the Earth, and so it had a global magnetic field the way that the Earth does, but the the core like solidified too quickly because it cooled down too fast, and so now it lost it doesn't have that um, magnetic field, and that's why it doesn't have a, enough of an atmosphere to maintain water mm -hmm. on the surface and stuff like that, liquid water, um, and so understanding that process is really important to understand how terrestrial planets form and like what happened to Mars and why it's like it like it is yeah. now and so that's very interesting. Do, do, do we um, I mean do we have a good sense at this point about what's going on in the center of Mars or there's I mean strong inference or weak inference? It's uh, I mean we have we have some sense but but this will will really make it clear um, so whether whether the the center is is really solid or or some kind of like not quite solid or or, or mm. whatever and then that that pertains to these questions about the history of the magnetic field and so on. I mean, so I've seen I've seen studies that kind of go both directions on that on that question. I think that the the general idea is that it's probably more solid than liquid, but um, you know, this the, having a seismograph on the surface will help settle that question. Mm. Um, so it'll study Mars quakes either from actual like motion of the surface of Mars or, or when a when an asteroid comes and hits the surface and creates a, a mm -hmm. vibration that that vibration traveling through the planet helps you map out 
like what's going on in the center of the planet, which is kind of cool. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. We so, also get got to hear wind on Mars, right? Yeah, yeah. It has a microphone. Well, it has a it has a it has a, a ways of measuring the vibrations of of parts of the instrument. Not not exactly a microphone. Does um, that count as a Martian podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Potentially. Okay. Yeah. So so they put out this. Um, this release of the sound yeah, of, of Mars based on the vibration of, in this case, the solar panel, but it'll also have, yeah. at some point, the seismograph actually on the surface. So so that's kind of cool. The first time you can hear, like, the wind of Mars. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, so that, that'll be really neat. And, um, yeah, so, so everybody's really excited about inside. There's some really cool pictures coming out now from that probe. And then, meanwhile, um, there's a, a, another... Um, spacecraft has just arrived at an asteroid. So this That's is right. Osiris-Rex yeah. is the name of the spacecraft, and the asteroid is called <laughs> Bennu. And, um, and Bennu is an interesting asteroid because it's a near-Earth object that is classified as potentially hazardous, which means that sometime in the next couple hundred years, it might collide with the Earth. And it's about 500 meters across, so that could be bad yes. if that happens. Um, but it has such a cute name to, yeah. <laughs> to do terrible things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it's an interesting prospect. Like the idea is, you know, we're we're going to that one because it's nearby. It's sort of geologically interesting or whatever, and because it might be potentially hazardous. Um, it's kind of but, interesting too, but might maybe hit us in the next couple of hundred years. Yeah. It also seems to me, given what's happening on the climate front and other stuff we're doing, that. It's also hopeful that we might be around for it to come and meet us. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, the idea is that if we do find out like more about its orbit and more yeah. about its properties, then we'll know if it is likely to hit, and then we have time to do something about that potentially, um, because there's there's a, we have we have uh, you know centuries to before that is likely to happen. I mean, it's still not likely; the chance is still low, but it's enough that people are a little bit concerned. So. Um, I mean, I think I would think about like the extinction of the dinosaurs totally differently if what hit them had a really cute name. <laughs> <laughs> like that was when Thomas came, and then everything yeah. was different after. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, the other cool thing about this this mission though, is that they're going to sample the thing. So yeah, they actually have cool. a little they have a little arm that's going to come off the spacecraft and grab a little bit of dirt, um, potentially about about a kilogram, which is the mm -hmm. most you know anything the most sample return of anything but the moon landings um, yeah, wow. and, uh, and then that part's going to come back to the earth and, and show us really what this asteroid is made of which is a very cool thing because mm. we we haven't done very much sample return there has been some but this will be like the biggest one since since the moon landings so yeah so that's a big exciting thing um and then the other thing that's all over the news is is uh, this thing about the voyager 2 spacecraft um and that that one is so the so Voyager one and Voyager two have been traveling away mm -hmm. from the Earth for a long time, and Voyager one um, a few years back was shown to have passed something called the heliopause, which is sometimes considered like the it going into interstellar space. Right, it's it's outside of the sort of electromagnetic uh, you know direct influence of the sun, mm -hmm. but there's still some influence, but it's different. Um, and so now Voyager two has just done that, and and the there are all these sort of arguments on the internet about mm -hmm. whether you call that going outside the solar system or not. Yeah. Um, because the solar system extends a lot farther if you count like the Kuiper Belt and the Oort Cloud and all of this sort of thing. Yeah. So, so, so is it fair to say you think of this whole discussion as super boring? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, it's not that it's boring. It's, that it's just that like we had the same discussion 
you know, uh, when Voyager, Voyager 1 did it. Did it. Yes. And I think it's I think it's confusing to people when you have a headline like, you know, it's yeah. left the solar system. Everybody's like, oh, that sounds really exciting. And then you have a bunch of people like, actually, you know, that's not yeah. really what we meant. I don't know what, to, you know, and then it just gets complicated. And and I mean, the, the important thing is that we have these two amazing spacecrafts that are still functional, yes. still bringing us data. Um, and they've been traveling for decades yeah. and they're really reaching out beyond anything, anything, you know, we've ever sent yeah. out. And that's really neat. And yeah. we're studying stuff about the space between the stars, which is yeah. know, also really cool. So, but isn't yeah. this just like plastic straws in the beach, or like bottles with messages? Where like the yep. first bottle with a message, you're like, "Cool, I got a bottle with a message." But then eventually, the beach is just covered in bottles. Well, I mean, they're not. Neither of these things is likely to get anywhere near a star other than the sun for like hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of years or something. Only so like, plus years just to get yeah, this one, yeah, right? yeah. So the idea that anybody's going to pick up this bottle, either of these bottles, is extremely small. Um, but, you know, it's a neat thing to, like, put, put stuff on picture, but Yeah, yeah. I don't <laughs> know. Idea. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's, I think it's still, I think it's really cool that, that, you know, these things are out there and that we've, we've decided to do this as humans to send little bits of ourselves out yeah. to, the, to the cosmos. I think that's what sort of catches people's imagination. That's what is fascinating about both those spaces. Yeah. Because on the one hand, you know, we might be heading towards self-destruction in some ways as a civilization, but on the other hand, we have these exotic things about well, and we're, study, we're studying yeah. other exotic ways of destruction yeah. that are not to do with ourselves, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so, like, yeah. uh, you know, losing a magnetic field because yeah. your core solidifies or, or yeah. an yeah. asteroid coming from space. Those are cool yeah. methods yeah. of destruction that yeah. are not our fault if they happen. Yeah. But, but so this, this is my question, but the, those spacecraft have an inside and an outside? Or they're like a solid... Yeah, they're like a, a little instrument deck with, um, with antennae. But the, is there an interior part that's protected from the outside environment? Uh, I mean, I think I think they have some interior, uh, you know, electronics and stuff. Sure. I mean, so there could there could be like, you know, bacteria or something. Obviously. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah. I mean, are they seated yeah, 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 with yeah. light? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very, very possibly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Well, people even think about that back then. Well, I think they've been thinking about that the mm -hmm. whole time, but but I don't I don't know how likely it could survive in that environment for that amount of time you know that's that would be difficult but but maybe you know if there's stuff sort of but that that gets into your area of yeah, yeah, yeah no yeah. it's a, it's really interesting so so i mean if we can follow this for a second so mm. what what would that environment actually be what uh it would just be uh cold and probably exposed to vacuum so huh. it would be hard to i mean you might have a little pocket of air somewhere in there but um unlikely that there would be very much sort of protected stuff but if you have you know if you have some electronics and you have you know some soldering and silicon and stuff like that there could be stuff that's sort of like tucked in underneath right like it's not impossible and so who would have touched this spacecraft or the <laughs> or the first one well they they've, they're all done in clean rooms um but uh there have been studies that have shown that that even in the cleanest clean rooms there are bacteria there are small little mm -hmm. things that get stuck to these spacecraft and you can't really prevent that completely and it's also been shown that there are some organisms that do survive yeah. trips into space um so there have been spacecraft that have been you know stuck outside the international space station they bring them inside their stuff on them you know like these mm -hmm. things yeah there's a great japanese happen. study actually showed mm -hmm. that you could put fungi on the outside of the space station and bring them back in and they were still all alive 
yeah yeah and there's and there's even even animals i mean tardigrades mm -hmm. are amazing little creatures that that can survive in space just by sort of shriveling up for a while mm -hmm. so, so there could even be those can we yeah. preclude the possibility that one of those spacecraft has the armpit bacteria of say carl sagan <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure if he ever touched the thing or was in the clean room but yeah <laughs> we can't rule it out. I don't think I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to rule it out. No. That's the, the cosmic armpit. <laughs> that that's fantastic. Yeah, we wouldn't want to rule that out of this podcast since we yeah. named it after his, one of his <laughs> phrases. So, but that's a great great connection to segue into talking about your work, Rob. I mean, yeah, you're the expert. So on just to stuff. just to do a quick introduction here, uh, Rob Dunn. Uh, in case you don't know about his work, he's a biologist who's uh, professor of, in, the, in the Department of Applied Ecology here at NC State for, for many years now. Yeah, number of years now. Yeah, many, 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 yeah. it sounds like too many, but yeah. Yeah, yeah a number of years. And uh, uh, in some ways, uh, Rob, you're kind of responsible for the two of us being here because you originated the public science cluster idea, which is what Katie and I are part of. Uh, but also your work is focused on biodiversity, uh, in a, in a number of different kinds of uh, uh, environments and habitats, but particularly of late, you're focusing on, and that's what I, I loved how you, Katie, you're talking about exploring interest, the space between stars, and you immediately jumped into looking at what's happening with life inside these, potentially inside these human-created spaces, and that's what you're... Yeah, you're I, about, I'm right? really interested in the idea generally that... Um, with the exception of some of these things, like if a giant Bennu, what's that his yeah. name? Yeah, Bennu. Yeah, Bennu, um, I guess it's not gendered. So if giant Bennu uh, mm -hmm. smashes into the earth and destroys everything, or a mm -hmm. giant or Bennu, that apart from things like that, yeah. life is all around us, and that that's a foregone conclusion, mm -hmm. and that mostly we act as though that's not true. Yeah. And so I'm I'm really fascinated by that, that tension, and... And so the most recent book is about the life in our houses and how we think about that. But my broader interest is really in thinking about how do we deal with the reality that that we depend on life, we depend on interactions with life. And that's true, you know, even as we become ever more digital, even as we become ever more connected in, in virtual worlds, that we still will depend on life. And I've been thinking a lot recently about how do we think about a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, what kind of world do we imagine? And, you know, one scenario, you have apocalyptic scenarios where we don't have humans anymore, in which case the biological story is really easy to imagine. We know what happens in that case, right? We have yeah. general rules of biology yeah. that would predict what we should see. But if we're still around, um, I think most of the, the sci-fi models of what that future looks like, biology is sort of, the, the wild world is absent of those scenarios. Yeah. And, and to me, this is a, and maybe there's a subgenre of science fiction, I don't know, that's totally embedded in future sci-fi plus life. Um, but I think in, in, in general, we get kind of a Jetsonian worldview. Yeah. We have the Jetsons, there's not much else around them. And we can't, we can't do that. We don't know how to do it. We're, we're embedded yeah. in this connection. Katie, you've um, have you have you read much by Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson? No. Yeah. Um, so so he wrote a, a series of books about uh, about uh, terraforming Mars called the um, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, which is very interesting. It gets into a lot of biological stuff. But um, 
There's a book called Aurora that's more recent that you should definitely read, and I don't want to tell you anything more than that. Okay, it does all right, about, all right. It does talk about biology in, yeah. and space travel and sort of distant future stuff. Yeah, okay, we, yeah. Maybe I'll, I'll check it out, Aurora. You, sh- you, should, you should not know anything about it going into it. Yeah. Okay, perfect. I've already right. recently discovered his mm. writing, and, I've, and uh, I haven't finished reading it. I started Aurora, but I haven't finished reading mm. it. But yeah, his take on, on biology in other spaces is pretty fascinating. But also, what fascinated me was recently he wrote an article in The Guardian uh, about this whole concept that Leo Wilson has been pushing about half Earth, mm-hmm. right, that 50% of Earth should be left for other species. Mm-hmm. He had an interesting different take on it, which I thought was potentially more practical and might even fit in with some of these ideas about you know newer technologies addressing how we develop. Uh, so just to remember and sort of summarize what I think the argument he was making was reimagining urban spaces, given the fact that most humani- most of humanity is moving into urban spaces now, which sort of overlaps with my own research, but and and yours to some extent. But he was talking about how, how might we reimagine and reshape that process so that there is this inherent move for humanity to be in these urban spaces. So let's encourage that. Which will, which might, but do it in a way that relieves pressure on other habitats and creates habitat for other species as well. So in some ways, it's not like you know leave half of Earth alone because we can't do that. You know, for a variety of practical reasons, we can't do that. But also from ecological perspective, I think you are. I know that it's that excluding humanity from nature is not really something that ecologically realizable. Right? You know, so, I mean, I think one of the interesting yeah. things there is that the. So I think we're, we're um, pretty good at finding individual species we need and yeah. figuring out how to grow them. And that takes yeah. a lot of work, much harder than we think. You have to exclude yeah. all the other species that threaten them and do that in a balanced way through time. Um, and I think we're also good at sort of taking a community of organism, organisms and pushing them toward a direction that's maybe yeah. more or less favorable. We're better at making less favorable communities, but... yeah. Um, which I think like is this urban model. How do we push these yeah. these urban forests and urban grasslands, whatever, in a yeah, way that it's greener, wilder, but at yeah. the same time more beneficial. Like yeah. that seems like you put put the thumb in a mm-hmm. useful way. But I, I think one of the things like when I talk to people about the life in homes that people always want to think about is, well, why don't we just take the seven species we need, put them together, and then we'll be good. <laughs> um, yeah. And there is a list like that. Yeah, yeah. but it's, it sounds funny. But yeah. this is what doctors want, right? Yeah. It's what I mean. It's yeah. it's um, uh, this is what doctors want. It's the whole. I mean, the probiotic movement is mm-hmm. built on this. Take a few species. But but my take from thinking about this stuff a lot is that we're actually far more ignorant than that. Yeah. That that our ability to imagine which species we need, like first of all, we're not very good at that, and then figure out how to grow them together. We're really not good at, and so to me, like the fecal transplant, the ultimate uh, yeah. sort of parable about this, which in the sense that fecal transplant is you you totally mess up your gut microbes, happens a lot to us now, and the solution then is to get the gut microbes in feces from somebody who's more or less healthy. It saves lots of lives. It's very useful, but it's also a recognition that we really don't understand what... What in, in there. Yeah, yeah, what is it that, you know, and... Yeah. and um, okay, so much on that. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I think that this is the same thing as we think for the future, and I think, like, the, you know, what about a, a Martian colony? Mm-hmm. Which species do we take with us? Um, 
And how do we manage those species so that weeds don't evolve and take them over? How do we manage them so that weeds don't evolve and take us over? Yeah. Um, that we're, we're way more challenged in that regard than I think we think we are. And Biosphere 2, to me, is the ultimate version mm -hmm. of this at that scale, right? which is this incredible attempt to make a new world like we might make on Mars. Or what's the most relevant example, Katie, is Mars a... Uh, yeah, sure. Mars, Mars is what people are talking about in terms of like long-term habitation. Yeah. So, so imagine we make a we make a bed and breakfast on Mars, mm -hmm. but it's sealed off, and then we populate it with the life we depend mm -hmm. on. So we tried that on Earth with Biosphere Two, and it was this massive failure where everything went wrong mm -hmm. because we didn't understand how to put things together. Mm -hmm. um, and and so I think that all of that stuff is pretty interesting and really reflects both that we need this nature and we don't understand it well enough to repeat it. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, I think like where we can push, push nature in a direction that maybe is, is suddenly more beneficial, mm -hmm. like in cities, that seems very reasonable. Yeah. And then when we're, where we're super ignorant or where it's at a larger scale to tweak it in the way that we know is okay or yeah. has been done for a while, yeah. but mostly leave it. And then to not screw stuff up, because that's one of the things that we see again and again in life and houses, is once we break the nature we depend on, our ability to like remake it, not so good. Yeah, we don't have an, an equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath of, you know, first do no harm. We, we've been terrible at that yeah. when it comes to nature. It's like, and even recognizing that there is harm. But on the other hand, you also have, have had this tension with a lot of conservation you know, movement and even thinking in in terms of the theory of conservation biology has been driven by this idea that people don't belong in, in nature in some way. Mm -hmm. This tradition of separation between humans and nature, mm -hmm. which I think has also been harmful. And and in, that nature in, doesn't belong in humans, I guess exactly, would be my side exactly, of it, right? Exactly. So exactly. there's a good example from Duke University, which is down the road, where they built a new medical center, like brand spanking new, tons of money, and it was for the hardest stuff. And so like heart transplants, um, you know, in surgeries where you need lots of control. And they put a water system in there that was like circulating water systems, super state-of-the-art, um, all kinds of amazing filtration. And they got non-tuberculous mycobacteria in that system. Mm -hmm. Well, non-tuberculous mycobacteria, they're like the weakest, most like non-competitive microbes in the world. Mm -hmm except when they're all alone and then they love a tube with some water flowing through it wow and so as of last year the latest is that to do surgeries they're having to bring bottled water in oh my <laughs> um because they can't get rid of it because anything that they would use to kill it um it's the thing that grows back most quickly and there's nothing else in the system to compete with it um and that seems like a perfect metaphor for yeah, our, our trying to control nature. Yeah. We, we broke it all and left the terrible thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and so I think that, which I think I mean, it would be interesting. I've not seen for like the, the International Space Station, there have been a number of microbial studies now that are um, uh, intriguingly not as sort of complete as some of the stuff people have done mm -hmm. on Earth. Maybe it's far away as hard. But the... Um, uh, 
but what's going on with the water systems there? Mm -hmm. I actually don't know of any studies for the water systems for the space station. Yeah, I, I just saw something go by my newsfeed about um, about something to do with bacteria on the space station, but I, I'm, unfortunately, I didn't I didn't check on it, so I'm not sure. But but this is, I mean, they do. The space station is mostly for for experiments about humans living in space. I mean, mm -hmm. they do other kinds of experiments on there, but most of the research they do is humans living in space, and so. The details of this closed loop environment kind of thing is not fully closed because they do mm -hmm. bring up supplies and so mm -hmm. on. Um, but, but nothing's coming in through the window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so the details of how to keep that running and keep everybody healthy is really is a really big part of what the space station is for. Mm -hmm. And so um, they do keep very careful records of all that stuff, and they're constantly doing experiments trying to figure out what's going on with all that. So there've been uh, so Jenna Lang at UC Davis had a study like. Uh, two years ago now, where they took the same approach we used to sample houses, and they had astronauts swab the space station. Mm -hmm. And so for bacteria, it looks very much like a some complex melange of toilet seat and mouth. <laughs> um, and then with a few bacteria associated with sort of degradation of the plastic and, the, and some mm -hmm. of the... Um, uh, other surfaces, and then, but then for fungi, it's it's mostly degradative stuff, and so it was worse on the mirror. The mirror was full of weird fungi, mm. and the mirror actually had brewer's yeast because the rules oh. were slightly less strict <laughs> about what you could bring up. Interesting. Um, mm. But nobody's really looked for animals in detail. There's one dust mite found behind something really? in a little bit of water, okay. but my suspicion is that it's actually full of interesting animals. Yeah, probably. probably there's a bunch of tardigrades, right? Yeah, it would be yeah, great to yeah. see. Yeah. But, but to, to, the, the reason I thought about that for a moment is that for, as we think about like what would a healthy home look like, um, mm. the space station is kind of one extreme. The space mm -hmm. station looks a lot like an apartment in New York City that doesn't open its windows, mm -hmm. which is mostly like a person kind of melted and all their microbes are just all over. <laughs> um, but that's the future we're kind of planning for. Mm -hmm. You know, when we design new buildings, we're trying it's to make like that again and again. Future to me, but yeah, no, me to me too. <laughs> yeah. So the other extreme would be, well, another kind of house would be a traditional house, like most houses in the world. No heating, no air conditioning, relatively open windows and doors, a fair amount of movement of animals, non-human mm -hmm. mammals in and out of the house. And so there you still see human microbes, but mm -hmm. but the microbes are really dominated by soil microbes, plant-associated microbes, and at least for the last 100,000 years, that's probably more like yeah. what we were exposed to. Yeah. Um, and so I think, for me, those are interesting because they present very different futures. You know, one in which we're embedded in exposures like this we've historically have, and the other of which we wallow in our own falling apart. Uh, and I think yeah. you probably hear where I come down on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Yeah. But, and so I was going to ask you actually, Gordon, a little bit from there in terms of you started by your research working in the rainforest. Yeah. So I, I started off really looking at um, two things in the rainforest. One was sort of beautiful, uh, obscure natural history. Mm hmm. It's like, what are these species that no one's ever studied before? What do they do? Yeah. Which still fascinates me, right? Yeah, and that yeah. uh, I grew up as a scientist learning that, you know, you go to rainforest to find these That's obscure interactions. Um, and then the other was, you know, I grew up in a cold place. There's a long history of Western scientists grew up in cold places. 
they go to warm places because they're so different. And then that becomes part of how you see the world. Like, whoa, why is it so diverse here? Now, of course, people from warm places, the often it's the reverse, right? Like, why are there no species in Michigan? Um, but the, yeah. the, the history of the field was really built on the, the former, the more interesting questions, probably the latter. But so I, I grew up in Michigan, went to the tropics, and and became obsessed, like many people, with this question of why there are so many species there? Why do they have the, the sort of attributes that they do? Why are they so different? How do we account for this? Are there yeah. general rules? And so when I started at NC State, I was doing that kind of work. And mm -hmm. um, sometimes it was totally general, like what, what are the rules that, that apply here that might also apply if we found life somewhere else? And in other cases, they were more related to a specific history. So for example, we know that um, plants with seeds, uh, the, the plants with little fruits that ants carry to disperse the seeds have evolved more than a hundred times. And so I was studying, can we predict the fate of those plant lineages when they do that? And is that mm. repeatable? And so those kinds of things. Yeah. But then I got here, um, and I don't know, the, the your daily life structures what you see because yes. you spend more hours doing some things than others. And so, you know, I started paying more attention to what lived here. I was here. My students were here. Mm -hmm. And and so with time, it became more and more obvious that many of the things I'd gone far away to see that were, were no less well understood here. Yeah. Um, and so that drew me to the kind of proverbial backyard to urban ecology. Yeah. Um, kind of been historically been bad about looking at things that are close to us. Yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, I think it's just human, right? Like yeah. that you're, you know, every, I don't know, maybe not everybody, but well, you, Katie, you're the ultimate. You're like, none of this stuff. <laughs> 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 maybe a different solar system. Yeah. <laughs> oh, solar systems aren't interesting. Yeah. Galaxies, you know, different <laughs> structure of the universe. That's, yeah, yeah so, so we, we, all, yeah. we all share that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but so I think that, that, it makes it really easy to overlook your daily life mm -hmm. and to, I think all school systems I've ever seen are, are good at training you about what we know. Yeah. And that's typically weighted toward where you live. And mm -hmm. so you learn what we know and that's about where you live, which implies that what we don't know is somewhere else. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it took me a long time to realize that so much of what we don't know is here. It's mm -hmm. everywhere. Uh, and then we were engaging the public a lot. And when we started to do that, people would ask questions about their daily lives. And we typically didn't know anything to do with the answers. And I knew that I didn't want to be the kind of person who gave the answer that this is the best way to kill that thing. Because mm -hmm. I, was, I was confined by biology, right? So there mm -hmm. were certain kinds of questions that weren't mine. But, but if you're asking, what do I do about this in my house? The least I can do is to tell you something interesting about it. Mm -hmm. And I found it again and again, I was just failing. Like I had no idea and I couldn't find people who had any idea. And so slowly those things were pulling me indoors mm -hmm. to have part of what we do be indoors. Um, yeah, and it's been, I mean, I still love the tropics. I, still, yeah. I mean, it's still like the, all the stuff that I study in houses has a, a grander and more rarefied version in rainforests um, mm -hmm. and yet it's 
it's way easier to engage people about the way the version in a house relates to them mm -hmm. than the rainforest one. And so I think I'm happy when I'm balancing those somehow. Yeah, that's... So wait, what, what's something that you encounter when people talk to you about life in their houses that you, you feel like more people should know about or understand because it's either because it's interesting or because it's like counterintuitive or, or better for you to think about it this way or that way? Like what's something that's like the, the biggest thing where people will ask you a question and they'll be like, no, actually this. Um, that's a great question. Uh, I'll give you a boring, intriguing answer okay. first. Oh, boring, intriguing, is that right? It's, um, <laughs> it's fun but boring. Okay. So the, the first answer is that when I, when I started talking to people about this kind of work, people were asking me about ants a lot because mm -hmm. I started with ants and microbes. And, and so people would ask about what to do about the ants in their houses. And it mm -hmm. turned out that most of those ants just hadn't been studied at all. Hmm. And so a first, except how to kill them, and even then, not in a very specific way. Like, mm -hmm. it was like how to make a hammer. Right. Um, and, and so when we started studying those ants, it turned out that they were super different from each other, and mm -hmm. they had really basic biological things that no one had noticed. And so mm -hmm. one example would be that the most common ant in Raleigh, and this is not indoors, it's outdoors, but it's a starting point, is the Asian needle ant. Introduced to... North Carolina at some point nobody noticed mm. and it wasn't until I had a student but Maginara started starting studying it that it became clear it was really common mm. and it turns out that it's the only ant so far documented where when it finds food to recruit other ant workers to that food it runs back to the nest grabs them and throws them on the food <laughs> <laughs> right it's nice. a, and so is that super important to the world probably not but, but it also could have been documented yeah. by almost anybody, and nobody noticed. And it's just such a bizarro thing. You know, they yeah. just run back. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so that, that's one where, where I still can't tell you how to get rid of them. Right. But I can tell you that you could have noticed that, and you didn't. Yeah. Um, another example. Oh, sorry, Katie, go ahead. I, uh, I, I helped with the discovery of an, an entomological discovery about about ants in the rainforest oh. a couple of years ago, actually. I was, I was uh, visiting um, this research center in, in Peru. Um, long, complicated story about how I was there, but it was in the Amazon. And, um, and I was hanging out with an entomologist, and he was noticing that there were these, these uh, ants who were cooperating with caterpillars um, the, in, in some interesting way that hadn't been seen before. And uh, so he'd been studying some of these ants, and, and um, I noticed that as just as we were walking around, there were there were some bullet ants um, on one of these uh, plants, and they were doing it too, and they'd never seen that before. And so just by like the fact that I was watching bullet ants because I was scared one would bite me, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I uh, I managed to see this thing that that had not been seen in bullet ants before, and then I got acknowledged in the uh, paper as it was written up. So. Yeah, that, that's actually a, a way better. Uh... It's a great way of thinking about it, which is that uh, one of the answers to all of these questions is that we can start to pay attention a little bit mm -hmm. more. Yeah. And that in paying attention, that you will see things other people are missing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of the time they're not useful. They're just intriguing. And then sometimes, for example, Omar Halawani in my lab is working on uh, Solenopsis ants, including Solenopsis molesta, which, as its name suggests, is sort of bothersome, gets in mm -hmm. the kitchen. Teeny tiny ants. 
And he's finding that they seem to have pretty unique antimicrobial abilities, mm -hmm. these ants that we find in kitchens all the time. Mm. And so who knows where that will go, but it's, a, it's the kind of thing until you pay some attention to it, you won't ever notice it at all. Yeah, I, I like the idea of, of science as just, you know, um, advanced paying attention. That's what it is. You just you learn what to look for and how to how to look at it and how to make sure you're not fooling yourself about about what it is. And that and, last part is key too. Yeah, and that's that's, that's what that's what doing science is most of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there are a bunch of tools for paying attention, a bunch of tools for um, poking something mm -hmm. so you can see something you wouldn't yeah, otherwise yeah. see. Yeah. yeah, and some beautiful math in there too. Yeah. The the other example I was going to think of that answer your question was the shower head stuff that we're yeah, looking yeah, at yeah. now where so shower heads all have these little biofilms in them which is sort of a fancy scientist word for like uh, fecal apartments um so the microbes kind of excrete these little apartments that protect mm -hmm. them and all shower heads have them and so they live in those apartments and wait for food to sort of flush down the through the water there's yeah. not much food but over time it builds up and so we've known this um we also know that some of these bacteria in the shower heads are not great. They're not terrible, but they're not great. And so we're trying to figure out what makes them more common and rare. And that's one where the intuition would suggest that the places they'd be more common is where people are, they have less chlorine, less bleach, you know, mm -hmm. used in cleaning it. And what we see is actually the opposite, mm -hmm. right? Which is that when the water's more chlorinated, there's less competition. And so these things actually do better. And so I think that's the, the ones, the ones that we don't like. Yeah, they're yeah. not tuberculous mycobacteria. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so as an ecologist, like that's like our most basic yeah. sort of insight. When you knock out the competition, the thing you don't want does better. Yeah. Like if we discovered yeah. anything ever, that yeah. was it. Yeah. Um, but that's very removed from our daily experience of mm -hmm. what we might expect. And so I think those those insights are also pretty interesting. I, I have one more question for you. Um, how do you ever feel clean <laughs> as you're studying this stuff? Like, do you just are you just are you just immune to the idea that you want to feel clean? I mean, because if like even when you're showering, you're mm -hmm. being like bombarded by these. I'm immune hormones. to the idea that I want to feel alone. Okay. Yeah, that's a so you're just you're just it, happy yeah. with with company. I like it. Yeah, no, I think we've we've. I mean, if we've figured out anything in the last fifty years better about human bodies, is that we're inextricably linked to other species. And, and so this sentiment of being alone yeah. is um, conceptually fraught. The idea I, that you yeah. can clean off, you know, like that I go through a day, I bump into a bunch of pathogens I don't want, and you can rid yourself of those, totally plausible. And my hand washing is beautifully effective at doing that. And so like that's, that's great. Mm -hmm. But the... I think conceptually we want to be somewhere quite different. So if you imagine, so each of our cells, our mitochondria were originally separate cells, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, imagine if I told you, well, you need to try to scrub away that separate cell that's inside <laughs> there. And, and uh, that sounds yeah, funny, exactly. right? It sounds funny. And yeah, I think that's but kind that's, of... That's profound too. I think that's kind of, it is a conceptually different way of looking at ourselves. Yeah. and, and Which I think is very... Important, I mean, important. I, I really like the idea of thinking of ourselves as ecosystems rather than yeah. an individual. Yeah. 
I mean, on an intellectual level, I totally get that. Mm. I, I love the idea of the microbiome, and I mean, I've even made peace with the fact that there are mites living in the follicle, the, my eyelash follicles. Like, mm. okay, fine, but 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 still, at some point, like, oh, you you might just, have this. We'll do. We don't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but like, but like, it's still just I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's some kind of cultural conditioning, but it's, mm. it's very hard for me to just be like, yeah, there's just going to be all sorts of you know, bacteria and creatures and stuff all over me when I take a shower and I'm just supposed to be cool with that. Like, it's, I'm, I'm working mm -hmm. on it. I I'm working on it. I think a lot of it is cultural yeah. condition yeah. because you, you talk about the, the, how homes have evolved over yeah. to the human history as well in terms of being more open versus mm -hmm. being more closed and hermetically sealed. And, mm -hmm. and that trajectory is more pronounced in some cultures than in others. So maybe there is an element of yeah. cultural rethinking as well. As to how we approach it. It's so recent, too, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, so Leeuwenhoek, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's what, very recent. 360 yeah. years ago, mm -hmm. right? Or so. Leeuwenhoek was. Discovered microbes, microbes. right? Yeah. So discovered protists, discovered bacteria, yeah. and broke open this world. And then, even during his lifetime, mostly nobody cared. Mm -hmm. Right? Like his neighbors thought he was intriguing. <laughs> they liked when it, they sh he showed them stuff. Well, people didn't know that germs had anything to do with diseases for a long time, right? Even after that, yeah. Yeah, for another hundred years. Yeah. Um, so, so they didn't have any reason to be worried about. No, that, that's true things. too. But, but I think you could still imagine that in discovering this life. Yeah. I guess my point would be that in discovering that life, we had to imagine how we would think about that. There, mm -hmm. There's no yeah. precedent for it, yeah. other than maybe how we think about dogs yeah. or something, right? Yeah. yeah. And and so. The idea that it's still a challenge, um, yeah, that's totally reasonable. Like, yeah. a lot of our, I mean, it's like an existential challenge. Yes. Um, and most of those existential challenges are far more ancient. This is a new one, so we yeah. get to struggle with it. That yeah. seems okay. Yeah. I'm getting a signal about the time here, so yeah. we should start wrapping up. Uh, but you have this other line of research that you've been doing as well, it's looking at domestication and and, and foods. And, and how humans have tamed species in different ways. And this got me thinking about something that I was going to, I forgot to ask you last time when you were talking mm -hmm. about your book about the end of the universe. Mm -hmm. The most obvious question was is there going to be a restaurant at the end of the universe? <laughs> I didn't ask you, but then I, I can turn to Rob now and also ask him if there is a restaurant at the end of the universe, what might be on the menu there? <laughs> oh, what would be in the restaurant menu at the restaurant at the end of the universe? Um, well, probably Carl Sagan's armpit, my guess. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a way, the road to we can just stop here. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. It's a wrap. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so that's, that's a wrap on, on this episode. But, uh, think about Carl Sagan's armpit bacteria and the rest of the end of the universe. Uh, remember that science is a verb. So happy sciencing until next time and in the meantime if you want to find out more uh, we encourage you to follow us on Twitter at, at, under, at science underscore candle. Uh, we have our Facebook page and if you're in the Central Valley of California in Fresno check out the radio show which airs on the fourth Tuesday of uh, every month at 3.30 p.m. on KFCF 88.1 FM. So I want to thank that studio for getting us started with this podcast. And uh, I want to thank the Public Science Plus Tolerance State that's kind of sponsoring us there. 
and uh, I also want to acknowledge uh, our young editor here, uh, Ben Zeno, who's behind the scenes and you're listening in on us and keeping us on time. And Isn't that the same name as for the asteroid? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, but it's you know, so only get halfway, yes. <laughs>